Hello, and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. The first metal objects began to be made in Ireland from around about the middle of the 3rd millennium BC, from about 2500 BC onwards. This coincides with a particular sort of material culture that includes evidence of archery and very distinctive pottery vessels known as beakers, as well as the first copper and gold objects. These artifacts are found elsewhere in Europe, and the prevalence and distinctive nature of the pottery has led it to be known as the beaker period, or the beaker phenomenon. But are these objects evidence of people from the outside moving into Ireland? How far can technology change culture? I had the opportunity to discuss the beaker people with Dr. Neil Carlin of UCD School of Archaeology. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Today I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Neil Carlin. Uh, we're going to be having a little discussion all about uh, the Beak period. Um, so, Neil, before we begin, would you be able to define the Beak period? Was it a period? Is that a correct thing to say? If it was, when was it? And how do we see it as being something that happened uh, that was different to what happened immediately before it and immediately after it? Um, are there any key signatures or particular artifacts, site types, things like that, that define this as a particular phenomenon in Irish archaeology? Okay, so thank you, Neil. It's a really good question. And in many ways, there's a, a lot to unpack in, in what you've asked me. So if, if, if I overlook some aspects of the question, do, do come back to me. I suppose mm. this, this, this term, beaker period, is an interesting one because it raises that question of, what do we mean by beaker? So some people talk about the beaker complex, other people talk about the beaker phenomenon, some people call it the, the beaker period. And I suppose if we're talking about beaker pottery, which is one aspect of the complex that we might call the beaker complex, mm -hmm. then we can say Beaker pottery first appears all across Europe uh, from about 2600 BC onwards. We see it in Britain and Ireland being adopted and adapted from about 2500 BC. But there's so much more to the beaker complex than that. There's a whole suite of different types of objects, particular practices yeah. that we see occurring with this pottery. Um, and, and then I suppose I'm slightly uncomfortable with, with the phrase beaker period because in some ways it puts a lot of emphasis upon the beaker pottery okay. and the beaker pottery although it's probably the most characteristic uh -huh. aspect of this complex if you want to call it that mm -hmm. it's only it, 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 it's only one aspect that, and probably an aspect that maybe has been overemphasized and Probably as we, as we talk more, hope it become clearer the, the ways in, in which that has been over overemphasized. Okay. And so we're yeah. looking at a, a, a time period really where it's the end of the Neolithic period really, isn't yeah. it? And, and are these kind of the, the first 
the first signs of metal being used in, in Ireland around the same time, is it? Yeah, and, and this goes back again to this, that, that, that that's exactly what we see happening. Mm -hmm. So in Ireland and Britain at the same time that we see the adoption of this new type of pottery, mm -hmm. we also see the earliest copper metalworking and the earliest gold metalworking. Okay. Um, and so as a result, some people have, rather than using the phrase beaker period, they have called this the start of the Bronze Age, representing okay. the end of the Neolithic. Mm -hmm. And then other people said, well, actually, you're talking about the Bronze Age there, and this being the early Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. But if we if we think of bronze as being that allo alloy, alloying mm -hmm. of copper with tin, then we don't see that happening in either Britain or Ireland until after 2200 BC. Okay. So we have a, a 300 year phrase, phase where people are using metal, uh -huh. but it's copper and it's gold. So people said, well, if there's 300 years people are using copper, but they're uh -huh. not mixing it with tin, should we call that something different? The copper so, age. So saying call it the copper age uh -huh. or call it the chocolate. But then <laughs> to complicate it further, other people are saying, well, hang on a minute. Uh -huh. If you give it that title, are you overemphasizing the impact and the role of metallurgy as a new technology? I so see. it's a technological development for sure, but to what degree or extent mm -hmm. does it change how people did things? Yes, it, it, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, how much does uh, a, a technology, if you like, influence yeah. a culture? Oh, which comes first yeah. I suppose yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it's always that kind of tension between I suppose there's new ideas and there's new technologies and they indicate change but then you look at the things that people were doing with those new technologies when you look at it from that way you can often see an awful lot of, of continuity so it's, yeah. it's really interesting to look at what happens in Ireland with the introduction of, of copper mm -hmm. uh, so elsewhere in, say in, in, in Britain people get copper and it's interesting that in Britain most of the early copper is coming from Ireland yes from from, from the Ross Island copper mine down in Kerry yeah okay. now, when they're getting their copper they tend to make objects like daggers okay whereas in Ireland when we get copper mm -hmm. there's a really big emphasis on making axes copper axes yes and so very large quantities of copper axes have been found in, in Ireland and that seems to uh, re reflect just how important stone axes, polished stone axes, were in Ireland mm -hmm. during the Neolithic. Okay. So when they adopt, when when, when copper is adopted here, mm -hmm. largely used to make copper axes. And then when you look at the things that people did with copper axes in terms of the sorts of places where they put them, yeah. they put them in exactly the same kind of places uh -huh. that a lot of polished stone axes, particularly polished stone axes that were coming from outside of Ireland, yeah, the sorts of places that they were being put. So largely in. Uh, in lakes or rivers or particularly in bogs okay so very high state they, they were putting a high status a high value beyond its utility yeah well it, it's interesting it's, it's interesting to think about about why people were, were doing that and oftentimes as archaeologists we tend to presume that things that are from from further away tend to be of, of higher status yeah and i suppose yeah. i i tend to ask questions about what we mean by by status and uh -huh. I think we'll come up with in, in our conversation more that these things were clearly important and they clearly yeah. had a, a lot of value and, and meaning and mm -hmm. something about the values and the meanings that were attached to these 
almost demanded that they be treated in these really particular ways. And, and, and yeah, we see yeah. that there was almost, there was a set of rules for mm. treating objects that were of an international style. Okay. Uh, and that raised the question, well, 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 why? What were the values or, or meanings? And of course, we're looking back to mm-hmm. over 4,000 years ago from our 21st century perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to understand what were what was the value system that people had at this time? Yes, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, the, the, that's a fundamental question. It's a difficult one to answer yeah. when there's no written records that, that even give you a, a look at that. You know, the, these this different type of artifact, if you like, or, or these different types of artifacts and different types of features yeah. that we see happening around this time period, yeah. around um, you know two thousand five hundred BC, there or thereabouts. Do you think that's um, evidence of a, a new culture coming into Ireland or do you think that's uh, it, you know do you think that's something that you know native Irish people if you like had butted up against from trade yeah. for example and, and learned different aspects and, and, and absorbed different parts of it I think it's I think the answer is that it's a combination of both uh-huh. so we see the introduction of, of new ideas but some of those new ideas and some of those new styles of objects would definitely have involved the movement of people. Yes, so you take yeah. something like copper metalworking. Mm-hmm. This is the classic one because the complexity of knowledge required to be able to identify sources of copper, to mm. mine it, smell it, to make copper objects, it's, it's such that it's not something that you can just tell somebody how to do. So we might yes. call that embodied yeah. knowledge so yeah. somebody is bringing that knowledge here i imagine for the first person to witness yeah. uh you know in ireland to yeah. witness somebody coming over and, and making a metal object yeah. from what appeared to be a stone yeah. that must have been a magical so, <laughs> so, so magical and, yeah, yeah and, and for yeah. me not just for the first person i think for almost anybody who, who witnessed it and, yeah and for me in terms of understanding what was the allure of of, of copper mm-hmm. I think it's that magical quality the fact that you transform it from something that seems to be a stone yes into this very different thing that has these you know yeah. in terms of this kind of a a, 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 a shiny appearance a particular color that, that that's a big part of it, it exactly it's such a transformation whereas a polished yeah. stone axe you can see the stone in it if you know what yeah I mean. yeah you, you can see its origins yeah if you like whereas you know a the, bronze saw yeah. or a bronze axe there's it's a, there's so a, different. Yeah, there's a tra- with the stone axe, with the creation of stone axe, there, there is some transformative aspect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Some properties of the stone become revealed to a greater degree, whereas yeah. with, with, with copper, it's, it's so transformative. It's like, absolutely. how yeah. the hell did you get that <laughs> yeah. from that? That must be magic or it must be yeah. uh, sacred knowledge or yes. it must be knowledge from the gods. Absolutely. You know, but but definitely going back to to your, to your question, in terms of being able to, in terms of that know how, uh-huh. that's movement of people. But it raises yeah. the question: Is that people from Ireland going away and, and bringing that knowledge yeah. back? Is it people coming to this knowledge from the continent mm-hmm. of Europe mm-hmm. who who have it? And again, maybe a little bit of both. It's it's interesting to think about it when you look at. So we have all these, what I call international style objects 
So we take mm -hmm. the, there's the beaker pottery, mm -hmm. uh, the personal ornaments, the copper daggers and so on, the gold objects, mm -hmm. the wrist bracers. And so it's interesting to know in terms of this question of is it people coming from outside or is it inside? We have international style objects, but in almost every case they've been made using locally available materials. So yeah, with the beaker yeah. pottery, when analysis, scientific analysis has been done on the clays that were used, mm -hmm. and that's been done at a good few places around Ireland, in Cork, in the Boyne Valley and so on, in each and every case, it's local clays. Yeah. Similarly with the copper, mm -hmm. all the copper in Ireland is made from this kind of Ross Island type copper yeah. that's locally available. And similarly with the gold objects, there is some debate at the moment as to the possibility some scientific analysis has suggested that perhaps the gold was actually coming, the Irish gold was coming from Cornwall. Okay. But the kind of the experts are, are undecided about that. So again, in terms of the gold, it looks like it's a locally available material. I, th I think it's really interesting. And, uh, and it was something that came up in the uh, discussion with Dr. Jessica Smith as well about passage tombs that we tend to think of Ireland as an island doing its own thing. And, you know, the continent of Europe doing its own thing and Britain doing its own thing. But in fact, the, the seaways at that time were the highways in a sense. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, it wasn't a barrier. It was, um, it was a way of communicating, yeah. a way of moving these ideas around. So in, in a way, it, it makes perfect sense for Cornwall, which has good tin supplies, yeah. to build up that kind of ongoing relationship in, uh, with parts of Ireland, which has high copper supplies. And there you go, bang, you've got uh, a lot of shared interests in one area, which means there's a movement of people, I suppose. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, and definitely, I think, I think we tend to underestimate the amount of mobility that there was yeah, absolutely. in the yeah. past. We've yeah. seen Ireland mm -hmm. as an island that, as you said, the sea has been a barrier. Mm -hmm. But in fact, all, all the evidence that we have indicates that movement between Ireland and Britain mm -hmm. and movement between Ireland and the continent was something that was done regularly yes. and enough. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. I, I think this is maybe why the whole beaker complex or beaker culture thing has been of such interest is that we see uh, around 2500 BC almost this kind of upsurge in interest in this European wide phenomenon it's interesting yeah. to contrast that with what was happening beforehand yeah because you have this 500 year period that this, some people are starting to liken to kind of a prehistoric form of Brexit okay where in terms of when you look at the archaeological evidence on the islands of Ireland and Britain, it's very hard to find objects or monuments or anything that indicates that people on the islands were still interacting with people in mainland Europe. Well, that's very so interesting. in terms of during what we call the, the end of Neolithic, the late Neolithic, an mm -hmm. awful lot of interaction between people in, in Ireland and Britain seems to have revolved around Northern Britain, particularly around mm. the Orkney Islands. Yes. So it, it, that in itself is interesting because we, are, uh, we might think of that as a reduction in mobility, but I, I, okay. I think even then we might be underestimating the difficulties or, 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 
or the distances involved in say traveling from the Boyne Valley to the Orkney Islands. It's yeah. it's four they're four hundred and fifty kilometers apart. It's yes. not just yeah. a, a hop and a skip. And it's you know the North Sea and and things yeah. like that. Like it, the the pretty rough sea conditions. Yeah. It's not like the Mediterranean, which yeah. is can be wild, but is yeah. generally a bit more placid. Um, I I suppose one of the things I'm always interested in finding out is is how some you know archaeology is such a broad church. Uh, it, there's so many different periods and subjects and sub disciplines that it, it, you can follow. What was it about this particular period that you found interesting? What was it that grabbed you? Yes. So that that that's a good question. Uh, I suppose in initially I suppose in a, in a, in a former iteration of, of myself, I, I began my involvement in archaeology working in the development led sector uh-huh. and so at the time i suppose uh, it, it was the celtic tiger the boom lots and lots of sites were being excavated and uh-huh. i was finding that i was ex- working on these various different sites um, around the eastern parts of ireland mm-hmm. where beaker pottery was turning up yes okay and i was really curious about it and I, I wanted to know more but when I looked at the literature that had been written whether in Ireland or, or in Europe mm-hmm. it, it, it didn't really take for me it wasn't taking account of all the things that had been found so mm-hmm. you know uh, on a Friday or at lunch times meeting with, with, with other diggers other colleagues who are working on other excavations and yeah. say oh we found some beaker pottery. like oh well we found beaker pottery here is when like oh we found beaker pottery here and it's like all of a sudden beaker pottery was turning up everywhere yes and that when we go to the textbooks yeah. that wasn't what they were saying yeah huh. and then also i suppose then trying to relate it to the european literature so much of the focus in the european literature was on these classic beaker burials uh-huh. Where stereotypically you find the unburnt skeleton in a crouched position with the beaker pot, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and a restricted selection of, of, of other objects. And mm-hmm. All the focus seemed to be on that, whereas in, in Ireland we were finding the pottery in a, a very different kind of context, in, in, yeah. in what seemed to be a settlement context. Okay. And I suppose. It seems to me that to understand, and the big question is, why did everybody all across Europe begin to make exactly the same type of pottery? Yeah. To understand that, you know, well, clearly this pottery had a particular set of meanings or values. Yes. It represents something. You go, okay, how do you understand what it meant or what it represented? You go, well, mm-hmm. okay, clearly there were some common ideas about what it meant, mm-hmm. but you know, if we think about any object or, or any single thing, much like ourselves, you know, meanings aren't fixed and meanings change across time and across space, but also yeah. meaning things change according to how we use them. Yes. So yeah. we all have things that we own. Uh-huh. Uh, and for one, for, for, for some person, it might just be ornamental. It's an ornament, something that sits on a shelf. Uh-huh. For another person, it's something that they use to cook with maybe every day in, in their own kitchen. That's and, true. and so the ways in which you use an object greatly influences the ways in which you understand its meanings. So from, I kept being members of these excavation crews who were yeah. finding these in, in pits in the ground uh, along with the remains of meals, occupational debris and so on. And I was saying, well, you guys in Europe are deciding the meaning of these objects based upon their occurrence with those burials. Yeah. And I'm like, 
if we really want to understand their meaning, shouldn't we look at how people were using these every day? I think that's the important question. And, you know, looking at some of the new scientific techniques, yeah. lipid analysis, things yeah. like that, is it possible to know what they were, would they be in use for a particular purpose? Were they only for, say, alcohol or were they, you yeah. know, general purpose yeah. vessels? And, we know. Yeah, and, and again, it's, you know, even if we think about, you know, they're called, they're called beakers. So mm. why were they given that name in the first instance? It yeah. sounds like quite a, a functional label. It does. And, 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 and that is because the first people, I suppose, to study these, you know, the early archaeologists or antiquarians, you want to call them that, mm. they found these pots uh, in burials. And mm. because of the shape of the pot, they presumed that they were drinking vessels. And so okay. they gave it the name, the, the name Beaker. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is that when you look at the beaker pots that occur in burials, mm-hmm. it, you know, there are a variety of, 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 of sizes, mm-hmm. ranging from lar- large to small, but there's been a tendency to focus on uh, a particular, particular shape and sizes of vessels as yeah. being the beaker pot. The classic and, but, definition. But then when we begin to look at all the other contexts and settings in which beaker pottery has been found, yeah. you get this much more diverse picture where you have a wide range of vessels, vessels used, you know, large vessels used for storing liquids or grain or okay. other foodstuffs, very small vessels that might have been used as cups mm-hmm. for drinking from. We have evidence from some vessels where we know they were definitely used for cooking because on the exterior of, of them there'd be kind of a charring and okay. and, and, and residues from the fires yeah. from the from the fires and you know so there is scope still in terms of things like the lipid analysis there is scope for doing more studies to try to better understand the wide range of uses that these these pots had so it's more about the the style and the decoration than the function in a sense, that's the thing that unites them a bit more cohesively. Do you think? Yeah, it's yeah. It, there. There's there's something so classic beaker pot. Mm-hmm. It's it's this very uniform, uh, geometric, ornamentation. Mm-hmm. But but again, you know, to complicate things a little bit further, you know, classically we think of the beaker pot as been decorated. Yeah. But so many of the beaker pots that we find in Ireland are actually plain. They have no yeah. decoration okay. at all. Okay. So it's another distinguishing feature, perhaps, of the beaker that distinguishes perhaps from some of the pottery that comes before mm-hmm. and some of the pottery that comes afterwards is that, generally speaking, it would tend to be quite well made. Okay. So in terms of look at the fa- yeah, you look at the the fabric. It's quite yeah. fine, very small. Inclusions. Yes. The the beaker pot tends to be be have thinner walls. Okay. But yeah. but it, it again there are, there there are exceptions to that as 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 well. Recently, there's been um, a, a study of of a, a recent adaptation into the archaeological toolkit, if you like, is the use of ancient DNA, and a study seems to show a large shift in the DNA of the population in Britain that coincides with this period that, you know, we're, we're talking about the, 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 uh, the big period. Do you think that, how far do you think we can rely on ancient DNA when we're looking at a question of uh, culture, in a sense? Is that shift in the genetic profile 
Do you think that that's a shift, uh, evidence of mass migration or perhaps even an invasion, a uh, hostile takeover, if you like? Or like, how far is that actually borne out in the archaeological record? Is there a danger of focusing too much on genetics yeah. to answer a question like that? Um, it, it's a difficult one, I know, but uh, could you speak to that a little? I, I think these are really important questions. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's timely that we're having this conversation because increasingly ancient DNA is having more and more of an impact on, on what we're talking about yeah. in, in archaeology. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot in, 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 in what you've asked. So I'll, I'll pick up on some bits and you can ask me more questions mm-hmm. if, if you like. So one of the, you know, in, in many ways, the ancient DNA evidence is, you know, it's really it's really important the work that's been done yes and it's really having an impact so before archaeologists used to debate and query as to whether things were spread through migration or not Uh and we think well is there evidence from migration and now with something like adna we can say at at certain periods of time it is quite possible to detect the movement of people through their genetic signatures mm-hmm. and so the you know this large-scale beaker study that was done across europe is is a good example of that but mm. it, it has it has very interesting implications because uh, it had some very contrasting results mm-hmm. so in terms of britain as you've already highlighted mm-hmm. we see the appearance of a particular genetic signature that geneticists are referring to as, as, as step genes. And this is a, a genetic signature that seems to originate in or in present-day Ukraine. Okay. And, and what, what seems to happen is that this new genetic signature mm-hmm. arrives in Britain around mm-hmm. the same time as beaker pottery and the earliest metallurgy. Mm-hmm. And in tandem with that, we see or the, the genetics the genetic analysis seems to suggest that we see a very sudden decline and significant decline uh-huh. in the genetics genetic signature of the of that that was previously in Britain that of the ne- the Neolithic farmers. Okay. Okay. So that's what happens in Britain, but at the same time, in other parts of Europe, particularly Portugal and Spain, uh-huh. we don't see that at all. So we have beaker pottery, other aspects of the beaker beaker complex or beaker culture. Mm-hmm. And these people are clearly interacting with people in other parts of, of Europe, including Britain and Ireland. Yes. But no genetic change happens in tandem w- with the use of this pottery okay. in that region. So th- this is interesting okay. because interesting. In, in a way it shows that s- there is some movement of people that's yeah. been associated with the i suppose dispersal of some of these new ideas and new objects uh-huh. but also at the same time some aspects of this are are, are being spread and moved mm-hmm. without the movement of people with this specific step gene okay now, so it's not definitely this cult we it's, can't say it's definitely we can't say it's definitely my, 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 yeah we can't yeah. say it's definitely migration and i suppose what so 
what what what's good here is that we can say is we definitely have evidence for movement of people and then be yeah. it becomes how do we interpret those genetic results okay and i think this is sometimes where we're starting to run in into problems okay and some of this comes down to the sorts of of language that we use and mm -hmm. how we're thinking about it so the genetic evidence i've no problem with that it definitely indicates in britain mm -hmm. that there is significant change in the genetic makeup of the people there now there's questions we ask about the timing of that so mm -hmm. is it something that's long and slow maybe it's spread out over 500 years and more okay. or is it something that happens quite suddenly and uh -huh. we don't have that fine scale resolution at the moment and some of that is a problem to do with radiocarbon dating and the broad range of, of dates that we get back from that and you know in terms of relating this to ireland yeah. it you know it is i'm gonna say that there are days that we see similar things happening in ireland at this time so okay. ancient dna analysis was done on three early bronze age men buried on, on rattlin island Mm -hmm. They date to around 2000 BC, so they're, they're, they're kind of post-dating the currency of beakers a little bit. But those three Ratland men mm -hmm. all have this step gene right. present okay. in, 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 in their DNA. And I think okay. some more recent work that's been done by Lara Cassidy mm -hmm. and Dan Bradley of Trinity is finding uh, some indications of that classic step gene in some of the burials the beaker associated burials in some wedge tombs that's really interesting you know shortly after 2500 bc but again you know we have the presence of this ancestry uh -huh. but there's the question of well what does it mean and and you know uh, you you asked me there a really important question was how do we relate that to the archaeological evidence how does it fit with the archaeological yeah. archaeological evidence are they telling us the same thing mm. and what's really interesting you know when i talk about what was happening from about 2005 BC onwards, I talk a lot about there being continuity and change. Mm. You know, there's change in terms of the you know the introduction and adoption of new technologies, new ideas, new objects. But there's also an awful lot of evidence for continuity, for continuity of place, mm -hmm. places that were important during the Neolithic continue to be important. Yes. But also continuity of practice. Okay. So the ways in which people did things oftentimes doesn't necessarily change mm -hmm. so you know we might look to places like Newgrange or Mountain and Boyne Valley mm -hmm. and we see that people are no longer using late Neolithic forms of pottery like grooved word are now using this uh, beaker pottery mm -hmm. but they're doing exactly the same things as they were before yes or okay. similarly if we look at so one of the new types of objects that we see occurring in across Europe are these stone wrist bracers uh -huh. and both in britain and and, and ireland and, and of course Europe, it's generally specially selected sources of stone mm -hmm. are used so they're not just making these objects out of any stone okay this stone is particularly significant okay and so in britain about half of all the bracers made in britain are made of uh, a, a, a type of stone that comes from the langdales Mm -hmm. in cumbria yeah and that's exactly the type of stone that that was used to make many of the stone axes yes. from the neolithic period okay. then if we look at ireland so mm -hmm. most of the wrist braces that we find in ireland this time 
are black, either colored black or colored red. Mm-hmm. And many of the black ones are made using porcelainite. And yeah. porcelainite, again, yeah. was the main type of stone that was used to make polished stone axes in the Neolithic, coming mm-hmm. from Tivoglia in County Antrim mm-hmm. or from Rathlin Island. Okay. So, in, in, in many ways, and they're just a, a few a few examples. Mm-hmm. And I, I, we, we could talk about, about many more, but rather than doing that, I suppose the, the key point to make there is that on the one hand, we see evidence for apparently this genetic changeover. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the cultural legacy of the mm-hmm. Neolithic period remains very, very strong. Yes. There's, a, yeah. so, there's so much evidence for you know continuity of place and continuity of practice and continuity of materials yeah that it's very hard to accept that there was a complete population replacement yes yeah as as has been suggested by the genetics evidence so then yeah. then, then you're not saying well how do we resolve this you you're yeah. i'm saying the genetics evidence tells us one story and the archaeological evidence tells us another story altogether mm-hmm. So how do we resolve these? And I'm saying, well, I'm not sure that we should try to resolve them, mm-hmm. or, or or at least not wholly, because in many ways, we are dealing with very different forms of evidence yeah. and very different kinds of data sets. So, you know, ancient genetics looks at people's biological makeup, mm-hmm. whereas archaeology deals with how people used things or materials or, or places in the past yeah and that's very much uh, i suppose governed by it's 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 a, a, a social thing yeah so it's not it, it's not driven by the same rules they're not driven by biological rules yeah at, at all so yeah. you know really i suppose what archaeologists are looking at is about identity in terms yeah. of how other people see us and how we see ourselves and in tor- terms of the construction or the creation of identity mm-hmm. people use things and materials and material culture in really interesting ways to make statements about who they are or who yeah. or, or or who we are yeah. and and those things are 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 are, are so complicated that that it, it's such a very different kind of study it is, yeah. I, I think that's at the heart of it, really, the, the question of identity and, and what gives somebody the identity. Is it solely the genetic makeup or is it all the other cultural yeah. a, a attribution that they, they bring on to themselves to a degree? And I suppose it would be good to finish, Neil, and ask everybody, is, is, have you got a particular favourite site from this period or is there a place that people could go to, to see a bit more about it? I suppose, for, for me, there's such diversity and complexity to what characterises the Beaker complex in mm-hmm. Ireland. And it's, it's hard to answer that question because if you think about it, so many of the sites that have really strongly informed my understanding were excavated in advance of the construction yes. of various different roads or gas pipelines or or mixed residential developments. Yeah. So it's no longer possible to go and see those places. Yes. Uh, we excavated them. We recorded the information. We created an archive. 
Mm. But but the places themselves are, are now there's a house there or a factory or or, or, or so on. And you know, yeah. I could say go out into the countryside and have a walk, which is a great thing to do, go and visit some wedge tombs. Wedge tombs mm. are this new type of megalith tomb that yeah. begin to be built in Ireland after 2500 BC, so around the same time that we see the introduction of beaker pottery, and we often see beaker pottery being deposited in these alongside mm. human bones. Uh, and wedge tombs are, are, are really interesting because they begin to be built after a 500 year gap in mm. tomb building. Yeah, yeah. And so, but in terms of the, their, their character of the architecture, they seem to, they're often located in close to or beside earlier Neolithic megalith tombs. Okay. And in terms of their architecture, they often contain elements of court tomb architecture yeah, that's right. or passage tomb architecture. So, you know, no harm to go out and if there's a wedge tomb in your area, go and have a look at it, walk around it, see mm. if you can get some indications from the locations of the stones and so on, mm. how it looked and how it was used at that time. But I suppose if I, I did have to pick w one place to go and visit, maybe an obvious one, let's say, go into the National Museum of Ireland, yes. Kildare yeah. Street in Dublin. Yeah. So many of the, the objects that form part of the Beaker Horizon or Beaker Complex in Ireland are all on display there and yeah they're really finely crafted objects uh -huh. uh, one of the strange things about ireland is that these objects unlike unlike elsewhere in an irish context these objects these beaker style objects or beaker objects they don't occur with burials instead uh -huh. we mainly find these the, being placed in what we might call natural places uh -huh. place, places like bogs mm -hmm. but but what's interesting so we're treating these objects differently but for some reason on the other hand people made these in very large quantities yeah, so okay. in terms of the number of gold discs or the number of copper daggers uh -huh. or the number of wrist bracers yeah. they're really significant more of these and they're mm. really well made so to get a flavor of that the best thing i think to do is go and look yeah. at the objects on display in the museum i, I think that's a, a, a great suggestion it, it the risk but uh, the wrist guards in particular are beautiful. They're objects. really beautiful. They, they, yeah. they really, really are. And uh, I think when it comes to prehistoric gold, there's few places that can do it better than Ireland. Yeah. You know, very blingy culture. For sure. <laughs> Listen, Neil, thank you so much for being with us today. It was You're really interesting well. insight. Thank you. So that's everything from this edition of Amplify Archaeology. I just want to thank Neil for all his time and insights there. I thought it was really fascinating. If you'd like to know more about the subject, Neil has produced a fantastic publication called The Beaker Phenomenon, understanding the character and context of social practices in Ireland from 2500 to 2000 BC. It's by Sidestone Press. It's certainly worth checking out. I highly recommend it. I'll put a link to the book, along with links to other things that we discussed in the show notes on our website, abarterheritage.ie. Thank you very much for listening today. I really hope you enjoyed it. You should be able to find all the previous episodes on our website at barterheritage.ie and we're also on iTunes, Spotify and all the usual places you can get your podcasts. Thanks very much. <laughs>